Ben Michalek. I am the school pastor at First Baptist Church of Troy, Bethany Christian School. Um, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 8. I wrote this sermon years ago, um, but I always enjoy it. So when I go someplace new on a rare occasion, this is often the one that I pull out because um, it means a lot to me. How many of you have a camera in your pocket or maybe like in your purse next to you? If you have a cell phone, you do. (laughs) Um, How many of you, there might be one or two of you here would say, no, because real cameras don't fit in your pocket, they have interchangeable lenses. Anyone in here like that? No? No one? Okay. So, um, growing up at uh, Bethany Christian School, I was on the yearbook staff there, and that was really my first introduction to photography. That was back in the days of actual film, before um, digital. I was right on the, uh, the change over between everybody was doing film, and then it started to be digital, and then now everyone's digital. So I got a taste of film, but most of the work I've done with cameras has been with digital. So I've spent a lot of time taking pictures over the years. Um, when I came um, after college, came back to Troy and was teaching at the school, um, I was in charge of the yearbook staff, so I was in charge of purchasing cameras and still taking a lot of pictures. So I, I have a lot of practice in taking pictures, so I like to think of myself as kind of an amateur photographer. But you know there's something that I've tried multiple times, and, it, and whenever I look at the pictures, I'm always disappointed. Have you ever tried astrophotography? Like you walk out at night and you see the stars, or you see like, you know, we had a full moon a couple nights ago. You ever tried taking a picture of something like that? And then you look at the picture, and it's all black, and there's like one dot. And you're like, that's not what I saw. Where you look at the sky and you're just in awe. You're like, wow, this is amazing. i got to take a picture. And you take a picture and the picture is nothing like what the skies and the heavens actually look like. Pictures hardly even begin to represent the majesty of the heavens. But what we're going to see here in Psalm 8 is that when you look at the heavens and you see the glory of the stars, especially not around here in the Detroit area, but if you've ever been you know, up north or you're going out into you know, the farm fields somewhere, and then you catch a glimpse of what the stars really look like. Because here we don't really, you, you, know, you see a dozen stars and you're like, oh, the stars are out. No, <laughs> you've not seen the stars. So if you go out where it's dark and then you see the glories of the heavens and the majesty and you're just in awe, ladies and gentlemen, you think of that little picture on your camera phone that doesn't barely represent the majesty of the heavens, you think of the glory of the heavens, that is just a thumbnail picture of the glory of God. We sit here in awe as little specks looking up at the glories of the stars in the universe. That doesn't begin to compare to the glory of our God. If you have Psalm 8 open, I'll read it together. I'm reading out of the ESV. I'm sorry, I didn't know that your um, pew Bible was the NASB, but this is what I have. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, 
the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. From this psalm, I would have you consider that you must praise God because he is worthy of worship. And two ideas as we look at it, God is worthy of worship because of who he is, and God is worthy of worship because of what he has done. The psalm here begins in verse 1, and actually verse 9 is a repeat of it. Starts with, O Lord, our Lord, the technical term for the first verse and the last verse being the same is inclusio. It's like an envelope. It, It encompasses, it closes it all together, makes it one thing. The word excellent here when it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic or how excellent is your name. It carries the idea of magnificence something that is mighty. And when he says that your name is majestic, your name is magnificent, it's not just referring to the name of God, which actually this is how the text opens. If you look there in the first verse, you see the word Lord and then the word Lord, but you notice how they're printed differently? Do you see that in your Bibles? See see where it's printed as capital L, then smaller capital O-R-D, And then you have capital L and then just lowercase o-r-d. The reason that it's printed that way in your English Bible is that those are two different words in the Hebrew. And that the printers are trying to give you a clue as far as which words these are. So whenever you see the word Lord and it's capital L then smaller capital o-r-d, that is the covenant name of God. So this is, um, are you familiar with the Legacy Standard Bible? Have you heard of that? It's a new translation put out by um, the Master Seminary out in California. Good translation. They actually don't do this. Um, this is tradition um, among English printers to use. Instead of printing the name of the Lord, we print the word Lord. But in the Legacy Standard Bible, they actually print the word Yahweh. So if you were to read in the Legacy Standard Bible, it would say, Oh, Yahweh, our Lord. So whenever you're reading your Old Testament and you're reading along, and you come to the word Lord, and you notice that it's printed like that, because it's very common. Capital L, capital O, but smaller, O-R-D. That's the word Jehovah. That's the word Yahweh. When he says thy name, he's not just referring to the covenant name of God. He's referring to the reputation of God. That when you say this name, what everyone thinks and knows about you. So the very character of God is majestic. It is magnificent. It is mighty. Psalm 148 says something similar. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the earth and heaven. Again, this is not just the name of the Lord as in Yahweh. This is his entire character. His entire reputation is majestic and mighty. It's representative of his whole person. Again, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. 
fundamental to the worship of God is that he is Lord. So you have that word Yahweh there, O Yahweh, our Lord. That's the Hebrew word Adonai. It means that God is our God. Yahweh is our Lord. We don't have lords and kings today. We in America, um, we are champions of democracy, right? Or at least federal republics, we hope, rules of law. Um, So the idea of having a dictator is reprehensible to us. You know, down with the king, that, that, that we don't like individuals here in America or here on this earth who are autocrats. We, we think that is something that is um, unfortunate or even wrong. But let me um, suggest to you that this is not always how it has been or even how it should be. That God himself is God and Lord and master to us. And for us to only champion democracy or a republic where we get to vote and elect our leaders um, might begin to distract our American minds from how the Bible would have us think about our lives. You say, what do you mean, Ben? Um, Well, Luke 17, if you care to turn there, I'll read it for you. Jesus is describing to his disciples of what their role is as servants, um, but really the word means slave. And again, in America, you know, this is, slave is something that's reprehensible to us, that the word is almost like a dirty word. We, there's such negative connotations connected to it. We don't like the word slave. But Luke 17, verse 7, Jesus asking his disciples this, Will any one of you who has a servant or slave plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So also when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So listen, this is how Jesus sets it up. He asked the disciples, if there was a slave that you had that spent all day in the field, sun up to sundown, plowing or keeping the sheep, he's out working, whatever. End of the day, he comes in. He asks the disciples, are you going to say to him, come in and take a break? Not at all, he says. Instead, you're going to say, okay, you've worked all day. Now, go and prepare supper for me. But don't just prepare supper. You make yourself presentable and come and serve me supper. And then what? Jesus says, are you as the master going to thank that servant for what they did? Not at all, he says. They only are doing what they're supposed to do because they're unworthy slaves. Jesus says, as disciples, this is you. And as Americans, we think, yikes, I don't want that kind of Christianity. You know, I want Jesus as my very best friend. But ladies and gentlemen, may I say to you that as you read the scriptures and you begin to catch a glimpse of who God is and then who we are, I mean, if you just read Romans 3 and see what sin is really like, because we tend to excuse our sin, because we compare ourselves with everyone around us, and we think, well, I'm so much better than him. Well, I'm way better than her. Look at how good, man, me and Jesus, you know, you know I'm not Jesus, but you know, I'm way better than all these, so Jesus must really like me. 
instead of catching a glimpse of how, how magnificent God is and how far beyond us that he is and how wicked and just tiny little specks we are, and when then we sh- should and we will, if we catch a glimpse, just bow our heads and say, yes, Lord, we are just unworthy servants. We've done just what was our duty. Because God is Lord of all. Therefore, he is worthy of worship from all. And may I suggest to you, even those of you who might refuse to give him worship, Romans chapter 1 tells us that even to those who don't know all of the things of Scripture, it says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is my prayer for you this morning, is that I know you know God. But I pray that you would not just set him aside. You know, we're here at church this morning and we sing praises to him. How majestic is your name. But then we're going to walk out of here and go home. Tomorrow morning we're going to wake up and we've got work or we've got projects or we've got things to do. And I wonder if how many of us set God aside until next Sunday because this is my life. Or if rather God would be on your mind Throughout the days, if you would, as Psalm 1 says, meditate upon the word of God day and night, because that is your sustenance. We as believers must worship our master, but in reality, everyone, believer or unbeliever, is responsible to worship God because he is Lord. Yahweh is Lord. And he's also creator. Um, If you look there in the text, this is actually what it says. This is the main theme of this psalm. It talks all about all the things that God has made. And that simply by looking at creation, one can see the glories of God. In fact, the glory of God is beyond even the heavens. A number of the psalms, this is the theme. Um, Psalm 113, the Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Psalm 148, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the earth and heaven. Throughout the ages, people have been in awe of creation. Unbelievers, even though they've rejected God himself, they have created religions and have held up created things as objects of worship. Romans 1.25 You and I, when confronted with this created revelation about God, I'm not talking about Scripture. I'm just talking about the heavens. I'm talking about when you look out at all the earth. When we're confronted with this revelation, we need to praise Him because He is worthy of worship. I wonder if this is your mindset. And it's a little bit telling um, when you have like, um, prayer times. I don't know if you have prayer meeting here. I assume you do. So we, uh, at Bethany Christian School, we often have prayer to open class. Um, we often have prayer times with students. And we allow the students to offer um, prayers, uh, prayer requests, praises. And it's probably because, you know, they're small children or junior high or, you know, maybe even high school. And they're not mature yet in their thinking. 
So often the prayer requests they give, my hamster's sick. No, pray for my hamster. Or the praises, like, I'm so thankful that I beat the level on my video game last night. The psalm here describes the kind of thing that we praise God for is not something so minuscule. And I wonder how often our mindsets, you know, we, we, we chuckle at what a sixth grader would say. But how often the praises that we give are not much different. And I praise God that, you know, I got a raise at work. Well, we're very thankful for that. But what about the eternity that God has prepared for us in spite of our own sinfulness? What about the individual that you're praying for who got, and I don't know how many of you this has happened to, but it seems like it, it happens that you pray for someone for 20, 30, 40 years, and then God wondrously saves them. Because we're so short-sighted that we praise God immediately. Right? That we're going to praise him that next Sunday, the next Wednesday night, we praise God. We've been praying for 40 years. And then when's the next time you praise God for that? Because we're on to the next thing. That there's so many things that we have to praise God for. And we sit there quietly when, you know, when pastor's taking, do we have any prayer requests or praises? You know, and it's silent. It's crickets out here. God is worthy of worship simply because of who he is. This psalm here, Psalm 8, does not command us to praise God. It's actually not an admonition to you. Itself is a hymn of praise to God. It talks briefly about who God is there in verse 1, verse 2. But the body of the psalm primarily deals with what he has done. So God is worthy of worship because of who he is. But God is worthy of worship because of what he has done. If you look there at verse 2. The first thing that the psalmist highlights is God's plan for his own praise. He's orchestrated his own glory. Psalm 8.2, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. You know, it's a, a Hebrew, Hebrew poetry here. So in English poetry, we generally rhyme. So the ends of every sentence rhyme with the alternating ones. And then we have um, a rhythm to it. So the poem is da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And we have a rhythm and a rhyme to our poetry. Hebrew poetry is not like that. that. That it's pretty rare for Hebrew poetry to rhyme. Their poetry was poetry of ideas. So they would have paralleling ideas. I don't know if you've ever read the Psalms. And you're like, man, I've been reading the same thing for three paragraphs. Because that's their poetry, is they say the same thing six different ways. Generally, at least in pairs. He'll say it one way, or he'll say it another way. Sometimes contrasting. So, I already mentioned Psalm 1, but the poetry of Psalm 1 is a, a contrast between two opposite ideas. The blessed man and the wicked man. The righteous and unrighteous. Here we have this idea in the Hebrew poetry of something that is really weak. Babies, infants, they're defenseless. Um, it was a sorrowful day um, this past week when um, the right, if it is, of abortion was um, enshrined in our state constitution. You have these infants that are being murdered by the millions here in America. They can't speak up for themselves. They cannot defend themselves. They are helpless. And yet here in Psalm 8-2, the 
The psalmist writes that these are the ones that God has decided is where his praise is going to come from that's going to silence his enemies. That out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. That God's enemies are going to be stopped by the words of babies. The Hebrew word here, this is why in your English Bible, it says you have established strength. Strength or um, the idea is some kind of support structure. In the Greek, the, um, the Septuagint, I don't know if you're familiar with that term, the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So they took the Hebrew, translated it into Greek, because the lingua franca, the, the language of all the nations was Greek. So to spread the Old Testament, the, the, the Word of God, they translated it into Greek. This is hundreds of years before Christ. In the Septuagint, the word is not strength, the word is praise. It's really fascinating to me that God has selected little babies, little children, as the ones who are going to praise him. They are the mouthpiece of God's praise that silences the enemies. And we actually see that in Matthew 21. Which you don't need to turn there, but you may if you'd like to. I'll read it to you. This is during the triumphal entry. This is on Palm Sunday when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on that donkey, that colt of a donkey, and everyone is raising those palm branches. They're laying their coats down on the roads for him to ride on. And as he rides in, everyone's saying, Hosanna, praise to God, glory to the Son of David. A lot of children are doing this. This is Matthew 21, verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Here, um, Jesus, in Matthew 21, quotes verbatim the Septuagint. The idea, um, Derek Kidner is a uh, commentator on the Old Testament, specifically the book of Psalms, and he suggests that the, the reason that the Greek says praise and the Old Testament, the Hebrew, says strength is because the words of these children is an audible bulwark. It is a fortress of words that these children have that are going to defeat the enemies of God. God has decided to orchestrate his glory out of the mouth of children to silence the enemies. And that's what we saw there in Matthew 21. I mean, if you were to keep reading in Matthew, in Matthew 22, um, I'll just read you these, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Pharisees, they gathered together, and the one of them, a lawyer, began to ask him questions, verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. The enemies of God end up being silenced, and it begins with those children praising God, and it was through their praise that the enemies are silenced. Psalm 8 here reminds us that God uses the weak things for his own glory. Paul elaborates on the same theme in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
I hope this might be an encouragement to you. I don't know how many of you consider yourself to be really strong or to be really wise, to be really poetic or really dynamic in your speech. I mean, I'm up here preaching, but I often feel like I'm fumbling for my next thought. I'm struggling to decide how to say things or what to say. Reading the scriptures, I need help from other people. But God uses people like me, and God uses people like you for his own glory and his own praise. God is worthy of worship because he has orchestrated his glory. He's created all things. Look at verse 3. He says, When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? God has created great things like the universe. You know that Genesis 1 says that in the beginning God created heavens and the earth. Within the time framing of the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 8, or Psalm 8, many in Israel among their neighbors worshipped the heavenly bodies, the sun, moon, and stars. Those were the gods that they bowed down to and worshipped. Today, most people just worship themselves. What's interesting to me is that here the psalmist starts with something that is so massive, that is the universe. How big is the universe? That's a great answer. It's, it's, it's pretty big. So in 2016, um, I preached this message and I found a description of how big the universe was. Um, and this was posted at um, BBC.com, so the British Broadcasting Company. And the title of the article was, It Took Centuries, But Now We Know the Size of the Universe. 2016, okay, so this is eight years ago, or six years ago. This is what it said. Today, we're fairly confident that the Milky Way is probably between 100,000 and 150,000 light years across. The observable universe is, of course, much larger. According to current thinking, it's about 93 billion light years in diameter. For those of you keeping score at home, that's 93 followed by nine zeros after it. A light year is the distance light can travel in a year. So light travels at 186,000 miles per second. Um, basically, that's too big for our brains to process. It's just massive. Six years later, I went to look up that same article. The article wasn't there. But on the BBC.com, there was a similar article entitled, The Mystery of Our Expanding Universe. This is the article. This is what it said. This is, I found this in 2021. So this is only a year old. Let's start by saying the universe is big. When we look in any direction, the furthest visible regions of the universe are estimated to be around 46 billion light years away. That's a diameter of 540 sextillion, or 54 followed by 22 zeros, miles across. But this is really just our best guess. Nobody knows exactly how big the universe really is. So it seems that the more that we study it, the more we realize, wow, it really is pretty big. And you would think that in studying the glories of the universe and just catching this glimpse of, wow, this is incredible. This is beyond what the brain can understand. It is just so big that people would just fall on their knees and be like, God, we repent. You are just beyond us. Your glory must be immeasurable. 
But instead, what happens is they clench their fists because they know God, but they do not want to bow to him. And they begin to make excuses and come up with alternatives to their being a God. May we not be that way this morning. But once again, fall in awe of who he is. Because God has created great things, like the universe. But he's also created insignificant things. And I chuckle to myself that the psalmist decides, what is the insignificant thing? (laughs) Humans. It's us. Where are the specks to contrast the mighty universe? The insignificance of humans is another central theme here to the psalm. When the psalmist is confronted with the majesty of God's creation, he realizes how insignificant mankind really is. This is why the question, what is mankind that thou thinkest of him? Because the answer is, we're nothing. You can find similar ideas in Psalm 144, verse 3, where the psalmist writes, O Lord, what is man that thou regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Job 7 and Job 24 say the same thing. In comparison to the universe, you know, we're infinitesimal specks. And yet in our minds, we're the center. That we're so big and strong, as if we could control the future, as if we could control this earth or have any bearing on where the future is going. I wonder if you think too much of yourself. I know when when we have this discussion, we talk about the glories of the universe or, or even how big this earth is, because it's really big. We think, okay, you're right, I'm pretty small. But then tomorrow morning when you wake up, breakfast is about me. My job is about me. You know, where I'm going, this church should be about what I want. You know, everything tends back to a meocentric mindset. Let us go back to the theocentric where God is the center because he is worthy of worship because he's orchestrated his glory in creating all things. The glories of the universe and also the minuscule humans that live here. But even as small and insignificant as humans are, verse 5 points out that we have been made glorious with great responsibility. He says, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Um, Now we're just going to pause here just for a moment because I don't know which translation you have in front of you. Um, The New American Standard Bible, um, if you have that, you've already been wondering why my translation says something very different. Because the NASB 95 update says, you have made him a little lower than God, capital G. How many of you have that? Anyone have that? Okay. Um, And you crown him with glory and majesty. Whereas the ESV, what I'm reading out of, says, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, which is what the NIV says. Does anyone have a King James in here? Okay, so the King James says, you've made him a little lower than the angels. So you've got three different, in some ways, very different translations here. And there's not a textual variant. That is, we, it's not like we're wondering which is the correct word here. The word in the Hebrew is very clear. It's Elohim. And you might even know that word. That's the word God. Right? Elohim is the plural word God. So this is why some... Translations might say, 
um, that you have made them a little lower than the gods, lowercase g, um, s at the end, which the Legacy Standard Bible, by the way, does. Um, if you want to turn over to Psalm 82, I'll show you an example of this. Because Psalm 82, it has the word Elohim twice in this word. It says, God takes his stand. This, I'm reading out of the NASB for this one. Psalm 82, verse 1. God, Elohim, takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the Elohim. So it's the same exact word there in the Hebrew. Yet the NASB translated God, and then the NASB says rulers. The ESV that I'm reading out of says God, and then God's, lowercase g. NIV, the King James, say the same thing. God, capital G, and then lowercase g, God's. So back to Psalm 8, what are we to do here? Why does this, is it little lower than God, capital G? Um, so, so I guess just a little bit of background in Hebrew. So Elohim is plural. And the reason that we translate it capital G, God, singular, because there's one God, but why is it plural in the Hebrew? It's called a majestic plural. Um, we here in America don't deal with this because we have presidents and we call them Mr. President and he is a citizen so that you could walk up to him and shake his hand and look him in the face. Um, historically, there have been rulers of people like a king of England and they still do this in England, by the way. Have you ever listened to the queen talk? Did she ever, you ever hear her use the majestic plural where she refers to we are going to do something, and when she says we, she doesn't mean the country, she means herself. That has become customary for the ruler of England and other countries when there's a king or a queen to refer to themselves in the plural, and it's a way to show majesty, how important they are as opposed to everyone else. So here in the Hebrew, that's why we translate the plural as a singular God, which makes this verse a little bit um, tricky, saying what is the right word here for the English? Should we be like the NASB and say God? Because is, that, is it referring to God the Father, like the person that you're, you and I are thinking of? Or is it like the ESV or the King James, referring to something less than God? You know, the, the heavenly beings, ESV, or the angels, King James. Well, if you'd like to peek ahead to Hebrews chapter 2, this is where I'm going to get my answer from. Because I don't trust myself. Even in all the study that I've done, it's always helpful to me that we, when we have questions about Scripture, that we answer them from Scripture. So this is Hebrews chapter 2, um, verses 6, 7, and 8, um, which, by the way, it's quoting directly from the Septuagint again, which is that Greek translation of the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6, and uh, this is one of my favorite verses for a totally unspiritual reason. How many of you have a bad memory? How many of you have spent years studying Bible verses and for the life of you, you can't remember them? I mean, so let me encourage you with this verse. This is the writer of Hebrews, the, the writer of Scripture. And he says, it has been testified somewhere, and then he quotes Scripture. I mean, this is Psalm 8. It's a pretty familiar psalm. Like, you would think he would remember the psalmist said, but he doesn't do that. He just says, somewhere it's written. I know this is in the Bible somewhere. I mean, that's me. Like, I know the Bible says this. Hold on a second, let me look it up. This is what he says. He quotes Psalm 8. 
What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. And it's the Greek word angelos, which is where we get our English word angels from. So it's very clear that it's angels, which is why I am content with the ESV and the NASB to say heavenly beings, or even the King James, which translates it angels. I understand what the NASB did there because it's Elohim. That's the word God. But I don't think it's referring to God alone, like God the Father. When it says here in Psalm 8, to 8 verse 5, you've made him a little lower than the gods, lowercase g. You've crowned him with glory and majesty. And I would point to Hebrews 2 as my evidence for that. That's not referring to God the Father. It's some other lower being. Thus, I think angels is a good translation. Back to Psalm 8, verse 5. What's the point here? Why does the psalmist say this? The idea is that even though that you are a small creature, you're even below the angels that God made you with glory and power. I mean, you can't fly, right? You can't get quickly from place to place. Like, have, like angels have amazing abilities. And yet, what has God done with human beings? crowned us with glory and honor. He has made us in charge of all of creation. Like this whole universe, who are the stewards of it? It's you and me. Right? So this is why we need to take care of this earth. When I was in um, junior high and high school, unfortunately I had some uh, misguided opinions. I was a believer, but I had some misguided opinions. And, you know, because I, I knew the, uh, the Bible I had been taught um, ever since I was a little kid, and, and I knew that in Peter it says that this earth is going to bur be burned up with fire, right? You know that? And, and God's actually going to recreate everything. There's going to be a new heaven and new earth. So my mindset was, and I had a friend and we would joke about this all the time, that, well, since it's all going to burn up anyway, it doesn't matter what we do. You know, waste water, you know, <laughs> clear-cut forest, who cares, right? Burn it all down. It's all going to burn up anyway, it really was a sinful attitude because does this earth belong to you and me? Was it gifted to you and me as our own? The Bible says that we were placed here as stewards. You know what a steward is? A steward's a manager. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It all belongs to him. So if I were to go into waste this earth and burn it up myself, I would be destroying something that belonged to God. God has made us, even as small as we are as humans, crowned us with glory and honor. Genesis 1, I already mentioned it to you, but he has created us in his own image and given us dominion over all these things. Do you know why human beings have value? Like I already mentioned, unfortunately, Proposition 3, that was um, approved here. But why do humans have value? Well, we're made in the image of God. Okay. Well, what does that matter? If I could illustrate it for you like this. So if you ever come to First Baptist Church of Troy, Bethany Christian School, please come by my office. I'd love to sit and pray with you and read the Bible together. You can come and um, sit with me in my office. I'll get you some coffee. You'll see behind me where I sit at, I have this table that I sit at. And behind me on this, I have this um, door. It's to a um, mechanical closet. There's circuit breakers in there. And it's a metal door. And I have magnets all over it. Well, all of these papers magneted up there. And there's this one that has paper scribbled all over it with crayon. 
And there's another one. Um, I just saw it yesterday. It was this pencil drawing of this sword, and it's like crooked, <laughs> kind of mangled. Um, and then I have this note that was written, and there's like this smiley face scribbled on it. That these are all notes that were given to me by my children. Are those worth anything? Could I sell those to anyone? Would anyone want to put them in a museum? But are they valuable to me? I mean, I put them up for display so that everyone who comes in will see them. Why are they valuable to me? Because of who they represent, who made them. And let me suggest to you that the reason that human beings are valuable because we're made in the image of God, that Jesus Christ himself made us. He is the creator. This is why God values us so much. We're valuable because God values us. And God has commanded us to value his creation. God is worthy of worship because he's orchestrated his glory. He's created all things. He's made humans small but wonderful. And the last thing, he has made us stewards of creation. I already mentioned this. We're rulers, but really we are stewards. This is why zoos are not a bad thing. They're a good thing for us to take care of and to learn and to understand God's creation. James 3, if you were here this morning for Sunday school, we talked about James 3, verse 7 of James. He says, every kind of beast and bird, reptile, sea creature can be tamed, has been tamed by mankind. God made them and entrusted them to us. This is why here in our psalm, Psalm 8, verses 6, 7, and 8, he says, sheep and oxen, beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea, all these things are under the dominion of humans. But ultimately, we're responsible. While we have been given dominion over creation, we need to remember that we're created beings ourselves. He is the potter. We are the clay. Scripture uses the imagery of the maker and the creation all throughout the, the idea of clay and someone molding the clay all throughout Scripture. God has done magnificent things. Have you made his mighty acts part of your worship? Is this part of your daily routine to worship and pray to God because of what he's done? Believers need to praise God because he's worthy of worship. Let me just finish with this idea. So in 1608, in the Netherlands, there was an eyeglass maker named Hans Lippersche. And he applied for a patent for a device where he took a convex lens and a concave lens and he put them together in series. And he wasn't given a patent for it. Um, it was rejected, but that device that he had made kind of spread throughout Europe. Everyone heard about it and began to make their own, including a man that you have heard of by the name of Galileo. And Galileo made his own device, um, his own ocular device with a convex lens and a concave lens and put them together in a series. And a term that began to be used for it was telescope. Tele meaning afar and scope to see, to see afar. You know, the usefulness of telescopes is not because they're beautiful, although I have seen beautiful telescopes. I don't know if you've ever been to you know, a museum where they have these old, you know, they're golden or brass, you know, these beautiful, shiny pieces of art. Um, they're not 
useful because of how big they are, how small they are. You know, if you have this beautiful, amazing, maybe you go to one of those observatories where they have these massive telescopes. You know, if the cover is closed or the lens cap is on, how, how useful is a telescope? No one looks through a telescope to see the telescope, right? If you have dirt on the lens, you know, you're taking pictures and it comes out with spots on it because you have a dirty lens. You don't want to see the lens. You don't want to see the telescope. The whole point is to see through it, not to see itself. Let me suggest to you that this is what you and I should be. You need to be a telescope for other people to see God. Because if people see you, you know, they're seeing the telescope, they're seeing the lens. We don't want people to see us. When people see us, we want to see a reflection of God. So, so if someone says, wow, you're, you're so nice all the time. How are you always so pleasant all the time? We need to just reflect the praise to God and say, well, it's, let me tell you why. It's because I have an amazing God who has changed me. Because I used to be grumpy all the time. I used to have a heart. But then I saw God. And let me tell you what he's about. And let me tell you what he's like. So that then they no longer see us, but they see God. God is worthy of worship because of who he is. Yahweh is our creator and Lord. He's worthy of worship because of what he's done. This psalm touches on God's plan for his own glory, his creation of all things, and our stewardship from him. The psalm is a wonderful praise to God, and it should remind us that believers must praise God because he's worthy of worship. Would you bow your heads? Let's pray together. Father God, may you convict our hearts. Once again, may we have the awe of standing in your presence. We're so easily distracted, weighted down with the cares of this life, with how elections go, with how our family is doing, things at work. God, may we be able to see through the fog and put aside the distractions to once again catch a glimpse of you so that then others may see you through us. And may we be like telescopes where people will catch a glimpse of your glory and be in awe of who you are and what you do. Father, may you do this in my life and in each of us here today. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.